All right, listen, I want everybody to take a Bible if you brought one and all you folks joining us online as well and go with me to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament when you get there, find chapter 4 and just mark that or hold that ready. We're not going to start there, but we're going to come back there and I want you to have that available. This weekend we're beginning a new sermon series called New Year, New You and what we're going to be talking about basically is our attitude related to three very important aspects of life because our attitude is everything when it comes to the quality and the direction of our lives. And while that might sound like some kind of a statement that comes straight out of some source like psychology today, that's not the truth. It comes right from the Bible. The Bible teaches us that in a variety of different ways. In fact, let's begin this morning by trying to illustrate that. I'm going to put a great verse of Scripture up on the screen, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And I want you to read it with me. I wanted you to read it with me. If you can read it with me from this screen, I don't know what's going on there. We might be having a problem that I'm not aware of. Then let me hear your voices. And I know some of you on the sides can't see this, but here we go. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, here's the question. What's the Apostle Paul trying to tell us there? Well, what he's telling us is that one of God's primary goals for each and every one of us is the transformation of our minds because the mind is the center of everything when it comes to our lives. It's the center of our thoughts, the center of our understanding, it's the center of our beliefs, our motives, our actions, and you can go on and on and on. And so here's a fundamental truth that we need to understand about God with regard to every one of us. This, this is part of God's universal will for all of us. It's the same for all of us. God... His will for us is the transformation of our minds. God's will for you is not that you have a comfortable life. Sometimes that's the reality, but how many of you know that that doesn't always happen? Sometimes you go through difficult times. God's will for you is not that you're going to find your best life now. Our best life is going to be in eternity when we're with the Lord face to face. God's will for all of us is the transformation of our minds. And all of this goes back to the attitude because the attitude is formed in the mind. Your attitude is formed in your mind. My attitude is formed in my mind. I've got my Bible open to Ephesians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there with me because I know you're holding your place in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we're going to look there in a moment. But let me just read you a passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, the same Paul who wrote those words in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 about being transformed in our minds, is writing to the Ephesian Christians, and he's talking to them primarily about the difference between somebody who is a believer and someone who is not, someone who is redeemed and someone who is unredeemed, someone who is saved and someone who is unsaved. He uses the word Gentile to describe somebody who is unsaved or unredeemed. And this is what he says. I'm going to begin in verse 17. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separate from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. That's a description of somebody who is living an unsaved or unredeemed life. Then he goes on and says this, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new, listen to this, 
in the attitude of your minds, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, he's describing the difference between somebody who is a believer and someone who is not. And he talks about being made new in the attitude of your mind. A big part of the Christian life is simply putting off your old self, saying goodbye to your old self, that old life, that old way of thinking, that old attitude, and being renewed in the attitude of your mind. The Bible talks about the importance of our attitude over and over and over again because attitude is everything when it comes to the direction and the quality of our lives. I mean, how many of you know that's true? How many of you know that when you have a bad, stinking attitude that life is bad and life stinks? How many of you know that's true? Anybody, any honest people here this morning? I've been there. Man, I can have a bad, stinking attitude a lot. We all live there at different times. And the Bible says a lot about the importance of our attitude. I'm thinking about Paul's letter to the, book in, uh, to the church in Philippi, the book of Philippians. And, he, and really, I, 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 I love that book. It's one of the New Testament letters that I'm the most familiar with, and you see the reality of an emphasis on attitude all throughout that book. Philippians 1.27 says, whatever happens, conduct yourself, yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, the only way to obey those words is by having a good attitude. That's all dependent upon your attitude, whether you can, no matter what's happening around you, conduct yourself in a way that's worthy of Christ. That's all about your attitude. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul says, and he specifically mentions attitude in this verse. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about how Jesus was willing to leave his position in heaven and come to the world and take on the form of a man and die on a cross to serve us in the ultimate way by dying on the cross and paying the penalty for our sin. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, Paul, this is a great verse, Paul says, finally, brothers... And this really shows us how our attitude is closely connected to our mind. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, do you know what he says next? Think about such things. The attitude is everything when it comes to the direction and the quality of our lives. John Maxwell, who is an author, speaker, leadership consultant, and a pastor, says this about attitude. The greatest day in your life and mine is when we take responsibility for our attitudes. That's the day we truly grow up. I'm going to adapt that quote a little bit and say it like this. The greatest day in your spiritual life is when you take responsibility for your attitude. That's the day you begin the journey of spiritual maturity because everything begins in the mind, including our attitude. Now, I could spend all the rest of my time this morning talking about the importance of attitude and talking about it from the perspective of the Scriptures, but I need to stop right there because this is a series called New Year, New You, and I want to focus on some specific areas where a new attitude can make a real difference in our lives in this new year. And the first one is our attitude towards others. And that brings us to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So, if you've got your Bible open there and you're able this morning, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. We didn't do this last week. We do, we do the public reading of Scripture where we stand in respect for God's Word about probably 90% of the time. Every now and then we'll have a weekend when we might not do it. But we want to make sure that we do it this week. And the text I'm going to read is very brief, just two verses. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. You follow along as I read. Uh, Solomon, who is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. There's no question that a big part of the quality of our lives is determined by the quality of our relationships, and that starts in the home and works its way out. A recent survey done by the National Opinion Center came to this conclusion. The biggest component of happiness is how connected you are to others. In the book, A Model-Free Approach to the Study of Subjective Well-Being, what a clever, creative, catchy title that is identified the primary components of a happy life as being the number of friends you have, the closeness of your friends, the closeness of family, and the relationships you have with coworkers and neighbors. All of this information from the world confirms the truth that we see in the Bible, and that is that we were made for relationships. It's a part of the DNA we receive from God when He created us. And we find this truth, again, just like the importance of the attitude all throughout the Bible. I love these words from Psalm 133 and verse 1. It says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And by the way, just as an FYI, the word unity there in the context of this verse does not mean uniformity. We make the mistake sometimes of thinking that we can only be connected with someone. We can only be brothers or sisters with someone. We can only be uh, uh, brothers together when we, everybody believes the same way we do about everything. How often does that happen in real life? Not very often. The Bible talks a lot about unity, but unity does not always mean conformity. In this context, unity simply means harmony. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. One of the last things Jesus said to his disciples before he began his ultimate final journey to the cross is recorded in John 13, 35, and we're familiar with these words. We've heard them over and over again. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you, do you remember, love one another, if you love one another. One of the best examples of how the Bible emphasizes the truth that we were created for relationships over and over again is the fact that there are 59 different verses in the New Testament that in some form use the words one another. 59 different verses that say something like love one another or be devoted to one another or serve one another or bear one another's burdens or encourage one another and on and on and on. The bottom line is the Christian life is not just a vertical relationship between us and God. It's got to be horizontal as well between us and each other. It involves relationships not just with God but with each other. You know, in the early days of church history, some people didn't think that way to an extreme. There were some people who thought if you really wanted to be a spiritual person, I mean deeply spiritual, then what you needed to do was find a way to be all by yourself. And oftentimes what they would do is they would go out into the desert and they would live by themselves, maybe find a quiet little cave in the middle of nowhere where they could be all by themselves and devote all their time to praying, all their time to meditating on the Scripture, and all their time to fasting. But that usually didn't work. Some people 
didn't even bother to leave town to do it. They, they just stayed where they were and did it there. I don't know if you've ever heard the, of the term pillar saints or not. It's not a real well-known term, pillar saints. But what would happen oftentimes is some of these people who thought that it was more spiritual to spend all your time alone literally chose to live. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. Literally chose to live on top of pillars. It started with a guy named Simeon the Stylite. He wanted to live in isolation, so the first thing he did was he went to the desert. He found a little cave, and he was all by himself so he could do what I said a minute ago. He could spend all this time praying and meditating on the Scripture and fasting. But here's the problem with that. This guy was a very spiritual man, and so people from town and the town where he was from and other towns were always seeking after him so that he could pray for them. They thought, I need, if I got a big problem, I need Simeon to pray for me. And so they would seek him out to pray for them. And there were so many people that were coming to where he was as he was trying to live in isolation that he didn't even have time to pray for himself. And so to solve the problem, to get away from the crowd, he went back to his home. He lived in a place called Aleppo in the land of Syria. And he lived on top of a 12-foot high pillar, a slab on the top of a pillar that was 12 feet off the ground. And so now there were people around him, but it was easy for him to ignore them and focus on spiritual matters. Sometimes he would lower a bucket over the side of his slab with a rope, and people would put in some bread and goat milk for him. He even persuaded some people a little bit later to build him a bigger pillar, and eventually he was living on a stone slab that was perched 50 feet above the ground. And while he was there, he would be involved in his daily routine of religious rituals. He would pray, he would read, and meditate on the Scriptures, and fast, and on, and on, and on. People could see him, but they couldn't bother him because he was literally above it all. And here's the deal, friends. He lived that way for 37 years. Can you imagine? True story. You can Google this. You can find the answer for this. He lived that way for 37 years. And even though there were people all around him, he didn't have a connection to anyone. He had no friends, no one to share with, no one to serve, no one to talk to, listen to, embrace, touch, and on and on and on. He lived in total isolation even though he was surrounded by people every day. Maybe that describes you, but you're not living on top of a pillar. You're just living a life where you have no connection, no real connection to the people around you. Maybe you're someone who has a lot of acquaintances, but you don't have a lot of friends. You know what one of the most common things that I hear from people is today? I don't have any friends. Maybe that describes you. Well, listen, that's not what God wants. That's not what the will of God is for your life. I can say that with certainty. We, we saw that in our text from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We can see it all throughout the Bible. And so we need to examine our attitude when it comes to other people. Maybe to be more specific, we need to improve our attitude when it comes to other people and when it comes to living out the kind of life that we were made to live, and that was a life that is connected to others. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to suggest uh, some things that we can do in this new year that can help us to improve our attitude toward others. It's not going to happen just like that. It's not going to happen because we bow our head and say a prayer and say, God, I'm going to have a better, help me to have a better attitude toward other people, or God, I want to have a better attitude toward other people. We've got to take some steps. We've got to, we've got to take some action in order to do this. And so I'm going to give you four things, simple things. We'll go through them quickly this morning that I think can really make a difference in your life when it comes to your attitude toward others. If you're someone who likes to take notes, write down next to number one, the first one. The first one is simply this, be accepting. 
be accepting. When it comes to others, we can't lead. In a relationship with others, we can't lead with judgment and condemnation. We need to lead with acceptance. And before anyone challenges that statement, because acceptance is kind of dicey these days, then I want you to listen to me close. We need to understand that acceptance isn't the same thing as approval. Acceptance isn't the same thing as approval. You can accept somebody without approving of every single thing that they do. I want to put a verse of Scripture up from Romans chapter 15. It's verse 7, and I want you to look at it with me this morning. Romans 15 and verse 7. Read these words with me. Let me hear your voices. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. What a great verse. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now, here is a question that I want to follow that verse up with, a question for all of us. Do you think Jesus approves of everything you do in your life? Do you think Jesus approves of every attitude that you have, of every thought that you have, of every action you take, of every word that you speak, and we could go on and on and on? Only someone who is a Pharisee would answer that question with a yes. Only someone with the attitude of a Pharisee would think that everything that they do is acceptable in the eyes of Jesus. Since we understand that Jesus doesn't approve of every single thing going on in our lives, then let's just think like this. If the perfect, sinless Son of God is willing to accept you and welcome you into his family, how much more should we, we be willing to accept one another? If the perfect sinless Son of God is willing to accept you and me with all of our faults and with all of our flaws and with all of our shortcomings into his family, then how much more willing should we be to accept one another? And I want to be clear this morning, because I always, I, I believe deeply in the importance of studying the Bible correctly. I want to be clear and say that I understand that the context of Romans 15, 7, where Paul writes and says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. I, I understand that the context of that is Paul is writing to believers about believers. That's the context of that verse. But at the same time, there's a principle there that can't be ignored. And you can't read your Bible, and in particular, the Gospels. You can't read the Gospels and not see that Jesus was willing to accept all kinds of people, oftentimes people who were a really long way from God. If you go back to that verse, Romans 15 and verse 7, the, the verse that, uh, the word rather that Paul uses for accept when he writes there and says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. In the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word proselambano. And its most basic meaning is to receive someone with kindness. That word accept, proslambano, in simplest terms, simply means kindness. Be kind. Show kindness to people. Everybody needs kindness. We need to understand that there aren't just two options when it comes to the people that we meet in our lives, and the options would be approving or condemning. We need to be accepting of people in the same way Jesus was, and acceptance does not mean approval. It simply means kindness. We're all familiar with the story in John chapter 8 about the woman who was caught in adultery. 
She was drugged in front of Jesus to see how he would respond. We know that the religious leaders were trying to test him based on his response. According to the Old Testament law, Jesus had every right to condemn her. Every right. That was the statement of the Old Testament law because adultery was strictly forbidden. But what did Jesus do? You remember the story. He just knelt down. He began to write with his finger in the dirt, in the sand. No, we don't have any idea what he was writing. There's lots of speculation, but we're not given that information. And then finally, he spoke up. And when he spoke up, he said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Because the people that were there, they were all holding stones because they expected Jesus to condemn her. And the punishment was death. And stoning was one of the ways that people were executed in Jesus' day. But he says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then, one by one, you heard those stones, those, the thud of those stones hitting the ground, and one by one, the accusers left until it was just Jesus and the woman. And he said, is no one left to condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. And then this is what he said in John chapter 8 and verse 12. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Now, Jesus did not condemn that woman, but at the same time, he didn't condone what she was doing. He accepted her. He didn't condone her behavior. He said, go now and leave your life of sin. People need acceptance, which is to say people need kindness. And so one of the things that we can do in this new year to help facilitate a new you is to have a new and a better attitude towards others. And one of the ways we can do that is just by being willing to be accepting. And you know, I know how difficult that is because I'm just as guilty as anybody. I walk down the street or I walk in through, the, through the, a store or someplace and I see someone and the, I don't know, the way they're dressed, the way they look, and, and I immediately can have this, oh my gosh, kind of an attitude. And that doesn't reflect what I'm teaching this morning. So this all starts with me. We need to be accepting because people everywhere need kindness. If you're taking notes, write down next to number two, pay attention. There's an old saying that goes like this. If someone is with you, be with them. If someone is with you, be with them. There's a reason why in the book of James you read these words. This is James 1.19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We focus on that first part. Everyone should be quick to listen. Developing a new attitude towards others might be as simple as paying attention to them. I mean, really paying attention to them. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where somebody is talking to you, but you know that they're not really paying attention to you because you can see that they're looking to see if there's somebody better? I used to go to the North American Christian Convention every year, and one night each year they would have an alumni reception for the college that I went to, and it'd be a big meeting room in a hotel somewhere and, or a convention center somewhere, and you'd go in there and there'd be refreshments. There'd be hundreds of people in there, and somebody would see you, and they'd say, hey, Chris, because I haven't seen you in a long time, and I'm talking to him, but they're all going, surely there's got to be somebody better than him here <laughs> that I can talk to. We've all had that experience, haven't we? If someone is with you, be 
with them. I had a really busy weekend last weekend. We had weekend services, but I had some weekend meetings that I don't normally had, and then I had a funeral right after church on Sunday morning. So I rushed home, and we had a little birthday dinner for my oldest grandson, and then I rushed over to the funeral home and didn't get back till later that afternoon. It was a busy weekend. It was a good weekend. It was all good, but it was very busy. And at one point, I had a conversation with a couple that I hadn't seen in a long time, and as a part of the conversation, I just asked the obvious. I said, how are you doing? And the husband looked at me and he said, we're doing okay. But because there was a lot going on in the moment, that was pretty much all there was to it. And I didn't really pay much attention to his words. I didn't pay much attention to the tone of his voice. I didn't pay much attention to the look or the expression on his face when he said those things until I got back home. And it was an evening now, and I was sitting in my favorite spot on the couch getting ready to watch TV, and I was running through my mind of the things that had happened that day. And I thought about all of those things that I didn't pay attention to in the moment and realized that there was more going on than what I had the time for when he said, we're doing okay. Isn't that easy to do, though? That's why we have such superficial relationships, so many of us. One of the best New Year's resolutions we can make is to give people the attention that they need. Talk about improving your life. Anytime you, you give to someone else, you're the one who benefits the most. There's a great story in John chapter 9 where Jesus heals a man that's born blind. I don't know if you remember it or not, but they were walking down, and there was a man born blind, and the disciples asked Jesus a question, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And, and there was a belief in Jesus' day that, you know, you could, because of, because of sin, even the sin of your parents, you could literally be born into the world with this specific curse of sin in some form like a blindness or or some other kind of a physical handicap. And I've always loved that story uh, because there were two, two truths in the story that were highlighted that really stood out to me. And the first one is that Jesus, you know, really seized upon that question to, to give them a powerful teaching and to give us a powerful teaching because ultimately he said that it wasn't this man who sinned and it wasn't his parents who sinned because then he goes on to say, but this man was born blind. This is John chapter 9, verse 3, the latter part of verse 3. He said, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. This man was born blind. Think about this. Jesus said, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And then what Jesus did next is he healed him. Remember the story? He spit into some dirt, made some mud, put it on his eyes and told him to go wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. Those of you who were just in the Holy Land with me not long ago, toward the end of our time there when we were in Jerusalem, we went and we sat by the pool of Siloam. It was right after many of us had just walked through Hezekiah's tunnel. Some of you maybe remember that. And so this man was healed. He was supernaturally healed. And the thing that we take away from that is oftentimes we go through life and when bad things happen to us, well, what do we say? Why? Just like the disciples, basically. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why is this man blind? And we say, why? Why has this happened to me? Why did I get this diagnosis? Why did I lose my job? Why is this relationship going south? Why, 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 why? And oftentimes, you know what the answer is? So that the power and the glory of God might be displayed in your life as you trust him and he does what God ultimately can and wants to do in your life, right? That's a wonderful truth. The other thing that always stood out to me from this is that uh, if you know the story, what Jesus did, he did that day on the Sabbath. 
He healed that man on the Sabbath, which, according to Old Testament law and the religious leaders, was a no-no. The Pharisees really seized on that. And this is the ultimate definition of a Pharisee. A guy over here is supernaturally healed. He's been blind since birth, and he's supernaturally healed. But this Pharisee, this religious leader, he doesn't care why, because Jesus broke the rules in doing it. And so they were trying to find a way to get Jesus on the hook. So they interviewed the guy and then weren't satisfied with that. They interviewed his parents. They weren't satisfied with that. They interviewed the guy again who had been healed. And ultimately, the guy says in John 9, 25, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And sometimes the Christian witness that we're all so afraid of is just as simple as that. I can't be a witness. I can't be involved in personal evangelism. I, I don't have enough knowledge. I don't know what to say. How about just saying, I was blind and now I see. Whatever that, however that looks for you in terms of your relationship, your connection with Jesus. It's the difference Jesus made in your life. And I was like, what a great story. And those are the two greatest things about it. Until this last week, when I was looking at this story again, and I paid a little bit more attention to the way it began, John chapter 9 and verse 1, which says this. This is how the whole thing begins. And he went along, talking about Jesus, and he went along, as he went along rather, he saw a man blind from birth. He saw. He saw a man blind from birth. Jesus saw a man that no one else ever even noticed. And that resulted in that man's life being changed in this supernatural, phenomenal, indescribable way. Sometimes we just need to pay attention. How many people do we walk by day after day after day that we don't really even see? And so one of the ways that we can have a new attitude towards others in the new year is just decide, you know what, I'm going to start, I'm going to start paying attention. I'm going to start noticing the people around me in a way that I've never noticed before. Well, I got to do this quickly. Right down next to number three, serve someone. I mentioned all the one another verses in the New Testament earlier. One of the most important is found in Galatians 5.13 where it says, serve one another in love. And this was a consistent theme in the ministry of Jesus who was always saying things like this. We've got Matthew 20 and verse 26 on the screen. One day he told the disciples, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And so here's what we need to understand. No matter who you are, no matter how important you are in the world, what your job title is, uh, or how the world views you, if you're a Christ follower, you're someone who's called to serve others. There's no question about that. And honestly, there are a few things that we can do in life that can result in the development of meaningful relationships more than simply being willing to serve other people. What would 2020 look like for you if you decided to make serving others a priority in your life? What would happen if you looked at the people that you encountered in your life day after day after day, starting with your family and working its way out, and you began to ask yourself questions like this, what can I do for this person today? What does this person need from me today? How can I bless or how can I serve this person today? You know, many of you are struggling I know this, many of you are struggling with identifying your one life that goes back to our one of our core four strategies of spiritual influence, which is to identify somebody in the network of your life who is a long way from God, that make that person your one life, and then be willing to do three things. Develop a friendship so you can discover their story, so you can discern next steps about how you might point them to Christ. And a lot of you, you are struggling to identify your one life. Maybe the simplest way to identify your one life is just decide that you're going to serve someone. 
Just let it start like that. Just serve someone. You know, one life, they happen in the simplest way. Ever since we initiated this thing, in my mind, I, I think back to all these moments in my life in the past and all these people that I had the opportunity to lead to Christ and how many of those relationships began, and they were so simple. They were so simple. We don't, we, you don't have to make it more complicated than it is. I thought the other day about when Sandy and I lived in Houston and Andrew was he's four or five years old. He first started playing t-ball and we didn't have a very big front yard or backyard, but there was an empty lot across the street from us. And so we, I would go over there and set up a tee and he would, he would hit balls off the tee. And we'd do that when he came home from school and just thing. And then one day a, a guy, two or three houses down came out and came over and started shagging balls out in the, in our outfield there when we were uh, hitting balls off the tee. And he didn't even come and talk to me. He's just out there shagging balls and throwing them back. It was a big help. And so afterwards, I met him, and his, his name, I still remember his name. He had a, a little bit of an unusual name. His name was August Skopik. And uh, so every day when Andrew and I would go out and hit balls off the tee, he would come out. And you know what happened? Guess what happened? We developed a friendship. And then I discovered his story. And then not long after that, I took his profession of faith in Christ and baptized him into Christ, he and his wife. See, it, you, don't have to, you don't have to press it. You don't have to force it. And maybe the way to identify your one life is simply just to say, I'm going to serve someone. That's it. I'm going to serve someone. Every day I'm going to ask myself, how can I make a difference in this person's life? How can I bless this person? It's all, it, that's all I have to do. One last thing before I move on uh, on serving someone. It's uh, uh, January the 12th and... We're less than a month away from Night to Shine, which is one of the biggest events that we do here. It's a special needs prom that requires a tremendous amount of volunteers. And even though we've been promoting this for a long time, we still need about 500 volunteers for Night to Shine to pull it off. This is this little dance that we do every year. Why do we do that? Okay. So go home, get on your computer, go to the church website, scroll down, click on the Night to Shine icon, look at the different ways you can serve, and then sign up because we need your help. We can't do this without you, all right? February the 7th, it's a Friday night, night to shine. We need your help. One last thing, and we'll bring this to a close. Right down next to number four, show appreciation. I, I, I may not know everyone who's here today. I may not know much about you or about your life or your story, but here's one thing that I can say that I know about all of you this morning and all of you who are watching online. I can say this for sure. Every significant person in your life today, at least on some level, needs appreciation from you, needs you to show them some appreciation. Your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends, your boss, your coworker, on and on and on, every person in your life needs some level of appreciation from you. And just like serving others can open the door to meaningful relationships Giving appreciation to other people can open the door to those kinds of relationships as well. Because everybody needs to know that what they do, the effort that they give, the sacrifices they make, don't go unnoticed, that they're appreciated. No less than eight of Paul's letters in the New Testament begin with a phrase that goes something like this, I thank my God for you. Here's how he begins his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. If you looked at an organizational chart for the ministry of Paul, Paul would be up here and Timothy would be way down here. But Paul never taught, uh, treated Timothy like a subordinate. He treated him like a, a son. He treated him like a brother. But most important, he treated him like a friend. 
And that made all the difference in the world to Timothy. How about the important people in your life? When is the last time you told them how much you appreciate them? You know, husbands and wives here, you know, I tell my wife I love her all the time. She says the same to me all the time, and you're probably the same way. But how often do we say, you know, I am so deeply grateful to God that he brought you into my life. We need to show appreciation. And so a great thing for us to do in a new year is to simply sit down and make a list of all the people that mean the most to us and then just think of ways we can express our appreciation to them in this next week or in the weeks to come. You don't have to spend money to do it. Sometimes the greatest gift you can give someone is the gift of your words. Everyone needs appreciation. Well, I'm out of time, so let's bring this to a close. Here's the conclusion that I came to after writing this message. Let me just read it to you right off my page. If the quality of my life is dependent upon the quality of my relationships, if I can't live deeply and experience life to the fullest without being connected to others, then I really need to change my attitude toward others because it's easy for me sometimes to see people as a burden rather than a blessing. Honest confession. I mean, put yourself in my shoes for a moment. Somebody who deals with thousands of people and thousands of needs, it's easy for me sometimes to see people more of a burden as a burden than a blessing, and that's on me. But I'm probably not the only one who does that. Think about the passage we read earlier as we began this time from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Solomon said, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But then he says this, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. What would life look like for you and me in 2020 if we made sure that there's not a single person in the network of our life, no one that we know, who ever has to fall alone? I want you to pray with me this morning. Father, thank you so much for your love and your kindness, and thank you so much that you chose to be friends with us. What a privilege for us to be able to say that we are a friend of God today through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would really challenge us and motivate us to do our best when it comes to reaching out to others, changing our attitude toward others so that we can make a difference in their life. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, we're going to close this service today a little different than normal uh, because uh, at the beginning of a new year, I, uh, we are going to do, uh, a briefly, we're going to be involved in an elder ordination. You know, the Scriptures make it clear uh, that it's God's will for the church that He created through His Son to be led by a plurality of godly men called elders. Um, The Scripture also makes it clear that the greatest priority when it comes to the selection of elders is that man's spiritual character and integrity. And we see qualifications for elders listed in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Timothy, in the book of Titus, and in 1 Peter. Let me just read to you very quickly the most exhaustive list of those qualities. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that's another word for elder, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer, the elder, must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment 
as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now, at the current time, our church is led by a plurality of godly men. And in 2020, this is the list of those men. Chris Beaumont, Jeff Sporleader, Bill Cragen, Aaron Paris, Bill Stambaugh, Phil Wagner, Kent Hassett, John Eckert, and Phil Powell. At the conclusion of this past calendar year, these three men who were serving as elders rotated off the board. There's a rotation uh, of our board of elders, and men serve for a three-year term. And these men just rotated off, Rick Neville, Luke Akerd, and Rob Weisbach. Since this will be Phil Powell's first term as an elder, we're going to participate in a brief time of ordination. And so I want to begin by inviting our current elders, and I'm going to ask any elders from last year, any of those who rotated off last year, if they would also be willing to join me on the platform just real quickly, if you'll come up here. Uh, and that includes Phil. Come on up here. Just uh, appreciate having you guys come. And you can, you can get eyes on the men who've served and do serve. And Phil, you just stand here by me, and uh, the rest of you guys can take a place behind him. I'm going to give this uh, microphone right here. Come on up, Bill. Uh, to Aaron Paris, who is the chairman of our elders in 2020, so he can pray in just a moment. And uh, I hope that all of us uh, can recognize the, the serious and the sober nature of this, because this is a huge, huge responsibility, not one that is taken lightly. I don't run the church. These guys right here... They lead together in consensus this church. I'm one of them, and they treat me with great respect that way, and I have deep appreciation for that. And together we try to follow the leading of God to do what we believe is right for this church. So I'm going to begin. I'm going to ask a couple of questions to the elders that are here. And one of these questions really is just for those who were involved in the process that led to Phil uh, becoming uh, an elder in this new calendar year. And the first question, that question is, have you men prayerfully and thoughtfully examined and evaluated the spiritual testimony and biblical qualifications of Phil Powell? Yes. And then the second question for all of you is this, do you men unanimously support his selection and ordination as an elder at Mount Pleasant Christian Church to join you in shepherding this flock? And then Phil, I have a couple of questions for you. And the first one is this. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 says, If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer or an elder, he desires a noble task. Do you, as a result of God's leading, have an earnest desire to serve him in the role of elder in this church? And the second question is this. Phil, will you, by God's grace and by your earnest commitment, do your best to model the life of Christ, seek the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, and seek the will of God in all things through the scriptures as you serve him as an elder. I will. At this time, Phil, I'm going to ask you just to kneel in front of these men who are going to surround you, put a hand on your shoulder. I'm going to invite everyone to pray, and Aaron is going to lead us in a prayer of ordination for Phil this morning. Lord God, we uh, humbly come before you um, as servants of your church, Lord. And at this time, we lift up Phil into your care and your protection. God, we know that you have unique, uniquely gifted him in many talents and many gifts. And Lord, as you've called him into leadership, Lord, we pray that you would grant him with uh, uh, significant wisdom and discernment so that we would understand uh, your voice and what you've called us to do uh, in leadership of your church. Lord, we're so grateful and blessed uh, to have this opportunity to serve you. And Lord, for Phil, 
as you uniquely called him, Lord, we pray your uh, hedge of protection around him and his family. And uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Let's celebrate God this morning through this ordination. All right. And I'll just ask you to stand and we're going to be, I'll just say a brief prayer and we'll be dismissed. Thanks so much for being with us today. Father, we love you so much and we're grateful for your love for us. And help us, help us, God, to realize that we were created to have relationships with one another. That can start right now as people leave the worship center and head out through the commons area to where we have signups for groups. I'm sure there are a lot of people in this service today who are not connected to a small group, and I pray that you would lead them to stop by there to, to learn more or to actually say, yes, I, I want to do this, and I want this to be a part of my 2020 and beyond. But Father, help us, help us to know that we develop a new attitude, a new mindset about others by taking some specific actions that will ultimately change us and may have the power to change others even for all eternity. Dismiss us with your blessing now. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone agreed and said? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.